This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. With the lockout in progress, still can't talk about current New York Mets, but we sure can do a little coffee talk about some other Mets-related items, right? You never do know where the Mets will turn up as you go about your daily life. From Keith Hernandez and Roger McDowell on Seinfeld reruns to Keith and Mookie on Sesame Street helping Ernie figure out why it's wise to put down the ducky if you want to play the saxophone. The Mets are such a cultural touchpoint, not just in New York, but everywhere. That is part of our conversation today on a little podcast we like to call Mets in the Morning. Mets in the morning, oh yeah, Mets in the morning, gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while coffee is brewing now, here's Josh Lewin, scootily down. Merry New Year! That's what Eddie Murphy said in Trading Places when he boarded that Amtrak in his African exchange student disguise. That's a movie that came out, are you ready for this, 39 years ago. We won't go back quite that far today, but I will take you back to the 1960s and 70s a bit and to May of 2014 of all times and places. More on that in just a bit. This is Josh Lewin. This is Mets in the Morning. Our goal here is to keep you thinking Mets year-round, which is easy to do in season. We'll have Monday through Friday game recaps and interviews and all kinds of whoop-de-doo. Out of season, we have to get a little bit creative and never do know where the next Mets thought is coming from. Full disclosure, was not planning on talking Tom Seaver today, for example, but there I was randomly reading a very cool book by Angela Duckworth called Grit. Yeah, Grit, explaining why people with passion and purpose tend to become successful and the lollygaggers tend to uh, not. Not a groundbreaking theory, I suppose, but still a really interesting read. And as I'm reading about those that have the grit and those that could use some grit and all the shades of grit gray in between, there it was on page 63, an anecdote about Tom Terrific himself. May he rest in peace out there in beautiful Northern California. One of these days, I'm going to invite Howie Rose to come on so we can really ping pong about uh, who Tom Seaver was, what made him arguably the greatest Met of all time. He was certainly the most important Met of all time. But in just a bit, I want you to hear what Seaver had to say about focus, determination, and yeah, that fun-to-say word, grit. One guy who certainly has more than just a spoonful of that characteristic, the stud of the Mets' current rotation that we can't say out loud, although we can give you some hints, ninth-round pick out of Stetson, Cy Young winners, uh, all-star game starter, threw 10 straight triple-digit pitches to begin a game in Arizona last year. I think you know who I mean. But since we can't really go there, uh, no currently rostered New York Mets are allowed to be discussed during the lockout. That's the rule. But I thought we'd go back to the last day that no current Mets were on the active roster. We can do that, right, if we just spin it back to May 14, 2014. That's the last time this pitcher that uh, we're talking about was not a Met. And he is the longest tenured Met. So that's our date. We go back to May 14 of 2014. 
The NFL draft had just taken place. Jadavian Clowney went first to the Texans. The Giants did well at 12. They selected Odell Beckham Jr. Narrator, the Jets took Calvin Pryor. Uh, the hit song on the radio was from Megan Trainer, being all about the bass, not treble, for those of you scoring at home. And the big movie about to be released that weekend, of all things, it was Million Dollar Arm, starring the great John Hamm. Mets-wise, the big news at that point was that Rafael Montero was coming up. That was the big prospect. He would get a crack at the New York Yankees first in the Subway Series at City Field. When the former Stetson Hatter did pitch against the Yankees May 15th of 2014, it was only because Dylan G was hurt. He was coming up to be kind of a spot starter. What Robert Gazelman, for example, would end up being, I think that's what the Mets had envisioned uh, initially, kind of a long man out of the bullpen. And yeah, maybe he'll start sometimes. He would face off against Chase Whitley, who was also making his MLB debut. The former Hatter would toss seven innings, allow just one run. He struck out Mark Teixeira, struck out Brian McCann. He got Alfonso Soriano twice. And some very telling things in that debut. Uh, He also got his first major league hit, one of only three hits for the Mets total in that game. And the Mets would lose one to nothing. No run support at all, even then, for the pitcher of whom we speak. The starting lineup for the Mets, the last time, the longest tenured current Met was not a Met. Eric Young Jr. led it off in left. Daniel Murphy was at second. David Wright was at third. Curtis Granderson followed hitting cleanup. Chris Young was the center fielder batting fifth. Lucas Duda was the first baseman. Anthony Recker caught. Ruben Tejada was a shortstop. Montero was the pitcher. And eventually, Carlos Torres and Jose Valverde would also pitch in that game. They got four hit by Masahiro Tanaka, and they lost 4 nothing. The manager of that game, of course, was Terry Collins. And we have a fun, wide-ranging 10-minute interview with Terry coming up. But first, some off-field news of current interest. In a continuation of the front office renovation here, the Mets have promoted Ben Zosmer to assistant general manager. He'd been the club's director of analytics for about a year since the Mets poached him from the Dodgers. Uh, He joins Brent Alderson and Ian Levin at that assistant GM level under Billy Epler and, of course, Sandy Alderson. The Mets now employ close to 30 analysts, engineers, and coordinators that Zosmer is basically in charge of. It was about two years ago they had one person with a focus on data science. Now they have close to 30. Also, it's been reported that the Mets are signing the younger brother of national star Juan Soto to a free agent international contract. His name is Elian Soto, and he can apparently rake. No clue if that means it'll be any easier to grab the elder Soto from the Nats once he becomes eligible to be poached, but let's see where that all ends up. All right, so as we go to our Terry Collins conversation, this kind of folds back into the analytics and research thing a little bit. You'll hear why in just a moment. This is part one of an interview with TC. We'll do more on a future podcast. Our conversation with Mets manager from 2011 to 2017, the pride of Midland, Michigan, never shy about speaking his piece. We'll crack him open like a nice ripe melon after this. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Okay, Terry Collins is joining us. We used to do this as a pregame show. And did you get paid for that, by the way? Did we ever give you money? You never did. Okay. Never did. So the check's in the mail, I'm sure. <laughs> can we give you a watch? Can we give you, you nothing? Oh, uh, yeah, I had a great time. You know, we became good friends, and, you know, it was all part of it. I, it, You know, you... There are things you do, you know, in, in this business that, hey, look, it's you're you're obligated, and so you just do it. So I remember coming to find you back when I was working for Fox Television, and same thing. Like we just show up once a week, and you got to hear somebody that thinks they know what's going on with your ball club asking you all about your ball club. Uh, were there ever times that you came really close to telling somebody, just get the f out of my office? I mean, that's enough. No, not really. really? You know, no, I, I learned. You know, Jive, when I was coming up in, in managing, I I had some great managers who were friends of mine, Lasorda, Leland, Tony La Russa, you know, Joe Torre, and every one of them, uh, you know, they, they might have had some, but they all told me, hey, respect the media, respect their job, you know, they're like everybody else, they have bosses too, and a lot of times their bosses tell them, hey, look, I want you to do this, and it may, they may not want to do it, but they're obligated to do it, so, you know what, I, I, took, it, I took that as, look, I'm just going to respect them, what they do, they don't know what I do, they don't know, you know, much about what all the stuff that a manager goes through. So I'll just, you know, treat him like, as like, like Leland told me one time, he said, you treat every guy like he's a sports editor for the New York Times. Hmm. That's interesting. And I'm wondering now that you are a little bit of a media maven yourself, you're doing games on the radio with Wayne Randazzo, in studio with SNY. Have you enjoyed that? I mean, is that something you'd want to keep doing or is it more of just like, you know what, when they need it, I'm, I'm, I'm good? Yeah, I think that's probably more it. I, you know, I did Fox two years ago. I flew to L.A. and that was a lot of fun and uh, doing those, you know, sh- studio shows because you sit around and you discuss baseball and and it's the same thing here it's a little harder now with covid you're not allowed to be in the studios but it was fun and this is a different perspective and you know what i got time on my hands i don't have a lot going on golf season's been you know in the summertime in florida there's too much rain so uh this gives me a chance to to still be involved when you were getting out of managing the first time uh you know and this story's been told so often about how you you really kind of learned some things and how you came back with softer edges. Did you rediscover some of those edges later in your managerial career? When you ended with the Mets, did you find yourself drifting back towards like, you know what, I'm getting too old for this blank uh, or any of that kind of stuff? A little bit, a little bit. You know, the analytics were coming into the game. And so you had so many people that, you know, had a part of what you what you did on your own. And, and you know, but, you know, I'll tell you, guys, there's a certain time in, where the travel started to get rough. You know, we used to be a time where you had a lot of day games and, you, you know, you 
you'd travel after a day game and get into towns at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Now you're getting in at 3 and 4 in the morning, and that's tough. That got, especially when you start to get up in here, you know, you need the rest. And I was, I'm a guy who got to the ballpark to be prepared as much as I could. So, and, and at the end of the season, it wore you down. I yeah. mean, it just, it really took its toll. And I, I just saw this change coming with the way the game was being played. And I said, that's not how I grew up. It's not how I learned a game. I'm sitting here remembering the, the one year that I spent with the Red Sox. I used to think it was nuts that it would take about an hour 10, hour 15 for us to load up a, a bus, get to the airport after a game. Because, you know, it used to be like 45 minutes. Hey, everybody, we're getting showered, dressed, we're out of here. So with the Mets, it was taking like 110. With the Red Sox, it took like 145, two hours because of what you just said. You got all these analytics people now. You've got 19 different coaches and nutritionists, and they got to load all their stuff on the. I mean, so I, I know we're complaining about basically nothing, but it, it does take a toll, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's, you know, again, you know, I said this, Josh, my last couple of years here, when people would ask me about what, what I thought about the job, and then I said, look, it's very simple. The game is evolving into something else, and if you don't like it, get out. You know, because yeah. you, you either adjust to it or you got to change because it's going to ch- it's going to it's going to happen and you can't stop it. And so I just thought it was time for me to move on. And you know, I owe Sandy Alderson and the Mets a, a tremendous thank you for all seven great years and you know a chance to go to the World Series. So I certainly look back and, and don't regret anything we did. If you were king for a day, Terry, and I don't mean to go and, and suggest, well, I go back to how it was in 1987, and you know we'd all be living in that world. But are there some tweaks that, that man, if you could just get in there and tell baseball, let's do this? What, what would you say? Well, first of all, the game—you know—the game is always what it was, and I understand, you know, the, try to speed the game up. I get that a little bit, but you know what? Part of this game has always been a thinking man's game. It's not—it's you know we. It, it's an anaerobic sport. We do a lot more standing than we do running. So, you know, that's always been a part of it. So I understand trying to speed up maybe, but then, you know, now there's so much money in the game that the commercials are adding two minutes and 50 seconds between innings where it takes a pitcher, you know, Bartolo Colon warmed up, he threw five pitches and stood on the mound for two minutes. So it, that, that to me is a little bit backwards. And I don't, I mean, I understand they're trying to make adjustments now, but, you know, can you imagine pitching a great game and then all of a sudden looking up in the 10th inning, you got a guy standing in second base and you're going to lose this game because you know this guy didn't get on I mean that's in that kind of stuff that's not how I learned that's not the way I grew up and and, and you know and I know they're trying to get games over I managed in Japan you know where they they had to stop the games and ties because the trains were going to stop so people had to get home and but I, I just think there's you know you got to earn your earn your way here and sticking your runner out in second base is not earning your way Fair enough. Now, I I got another little track I want to take you down because you mentioned some of the guys that you grew up with in the game, some of your mentors and and rabbis and things like that. If you were to assemble a group for dinner of baseball guys, could be coaches, could be managers, could be players, I'm going to give you a table of, I don't know, 8 to 10. So let's have some fun with this. Uh, Let's start with, obviously, I'm sure you'd you'd love to have Jim Leland there. I get that. Could be a player, could be a coach, could be whoever. Who's at dinner? Well, I will tell you, Josh, this is really true. It's amazing. I've had dinner with some of the guys I really have. 
you know, come became great friends with. I mean, I'm very, very close with Sandy Koufax, and we talk a lot about baseball, and I, I just sit there and listen to it. I loved I loved all those older guys. I loved Drysdale and all the years with the Dodgers and, you know, Maury Wills, all those people that became friends and managers. You're looking at Jim Leland. I'd love to really, Walt, when I first started managing the minor leagues, Walter Olson had just left the Dodgers as their manager after 23 years and came down and spent an hour talking to me about, me about managing. Uh, Sparky Anderson, when I was managing the Angels, he spent he spent time with me. When I first got in the managing business, my first games in spring training were with the Detroit Tigers, and I was a Michigan guy, and Sparky was the manager, and one day grabbed me after an exhibition game, and we talked for an hour and a half. I missed the bus. I had to get, find a way to drive back to Kissimmee. But those are the kind of guys that, you know, all those guys that, you know, had a history in the game, and uh, you, you got to, every one of them will have some great information for you. Mets wives, I'm assuming David Wright it was one of the easier guys to manage. Who were some of the other guys in your time that you're just so glad that you made a contact point with when you were wearing that uniform? Well, I can start out in Houston very simply. I had Craig Biggio and, and Jeff Bagwell. They were two, I mean, Hall of Famers, but they were Hall of Fame people too, and that was great. And when I went to Anaheim, Tim Sam and then Darren Erstad were great guys. Garrett Anderson did nothing but show up and play every day. Chuck Finley, 17-year veteran, just uh, just all he wanted to do was pitch. Just give me the baseball. And, and he was the easiest to manage because he went out and said, when you want to take me out, take me out. I'll never say a word. I don't know, because I don't want to come out. But that's going to be your call, and you're you're, the, you're getting paid to make those rules. He was so easy to manage. And I said, you know, there was, there were, I've had enough guys that you don't have to manage those guys. They manage themselves. You know, they had routines. David Wright came to the ballpark every day and did his routine and got prepared to play and was one of the best players on the field any night, on any night. And, you know, as a manager, you just got to sit back and because one of these days you're going to have a guy who's going to need direction and you can tell him, hey, look, I saw this happen and I saw it work. And those are the things you learn to help your players. How often, Terry, I, I know that rather famously in Anaheim one year there were a bunch of players that just you couldn't connect with. But for the most part... I would think that's rare, right? I mean, where in in the course of a season, if you got 50 guys that you have to manage, is it maybe one or two a year that you're thinking, man, I don't like this guy? Or is it, sometimes is it zero? No, well, there's always going to be somebody you don't, you know, you can't please everybody. I mean, it's, it's impossible. You know, and, and I look back on those years and, you know, we had expectations and we created those expectations because we got better. And in 1999, we were supposed to win. And due to injuries and we didn't win and so the fingers get pointed in certain directions and so as a manager it's, hey, it's your job but that didn't change the fact that I still had to work with those guys and still went about trying to get them ready to play I can't help that they didn't like my energy or that I was you know I was too high strung or whatever hey look this is who I am and all I want you to do is go play and go play well all right, more to come with Terry in part two of this sit-down that I did back around late September at City Field. But before we get too far offshore with this boat, I mentioned earlier the book Grit and what it had to say about Tom Seaver. Here's Angela Duckworth's presentation on page 63. She asked us to consider Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver. When he retired in 1987, he'd compiled 311 wins, 3,640 strikeouts, 2.86 ERA. When he had been elected to the Hall of Fame, he received the highest ever percentage of votes, 98.8%. 
During his 20-year professional baseball career, Seaver aimed to pitch, quote, the best I possibly can day after day, year after year. Here is how that intention gave meaning and structure to all of his lower order goals. And by the way, this is from an interview that he did with Sports Illustrated back in 1972. But here's what Angela Duckworth cut and pasted. Pitching determines what I eat when I go to bed, what I do when I'm awake. It determines how I spend my life when I'm not pitching. If it means I have to come to Florida and can't get tanned because I might get a burn that would keep me from throwing for a few days, then I never go shirtless in the sun. If it means I have to remind myself to pet dogs with my left hand or throw logs on the fire with my left hand, then I do that too. If it means in the winter I eat cottage cheese instead of chocolate chip cookies in order to keep my weight down, then I eat the cottage cheese. So Angela Duckworth says the life Seaver describes sounds grim, but that's not how Seaver saw things. Quote, pitching is what makes me happy. I've devoted my life to it. I've made up my mind what I want to do. I'm happy when I pitch well, so I only do things that help me be happy. I think that's just a perfect explanation and manifestation of a guy who's got his life philosophy perfectly in order. It's all about prioritizing. It's about making some sacrifices. That is impressive, and I'm so glad I stumbled across that. Uh, I feel like Larry King here. The book is Grit by Angela Duckworth, The Power and Passion, I'm sorry, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. I knew I would mess that up, and, and sure enough, I did. See, I manifested that I would mess it up, and it actually happened. To close today's podcast, we continue our jump around the Mets position by position. This is our shortstop discussion, and again, due to the lockout, We'll just leave the current state of affairs like this. Uh, the Mets paid $341 million for a guy, 10-year deal. The first year was turbulent, seemed to smooth out nicely towards the end. Said shortstop in September had nine home runs, 25 runs batted in in just 29 games. He had the three-homer game to beat the Yankees at City Field on that memorable Sunday night. So if said shortstop plays out that 10-year contract and contributes even 130 games a year on average, that's 1,300 games at that position for the blue and orange, and that would be an all-time franchise record. Currently, only 12 Mets have even played 200 career games at shortstop for the team, and this sounds like a sporkle quiz to me. 30 seconds on the clock. How many can you name Mets shortstops that have played more than 200 games as a Met at that position? I'm letting the music play for a little bit here, but now I'll give you the list. Ron Garden higher, 230 games. Jose Vizcaino, 236. Howard Johnson, 263. Roy McMillan, 335. Frank Taveras, 371. Ahmed Rosario, 387. Ruben Tejada, 427. Your top five, Rafael Santana, 478. Kevin Elster with 524. That's way more than I thought he had. Ray Ordonez, number three at 907. Jose Reyes, number two at 1117. Buddy Harrelson, number one with 1,280. That's the whole freaking list of guys that have 200 games banked as a shortstop as a Met. The most successful of all those, at least by wins above replacement, it was Reyes by a secretariat-style distance against the rest of the field. He was a plus 37 in war his first 10 years as a Met. In 05 and 06, he was a 5.1 and a 5.9. Best after that for a while was Tejada. He had a couple of twos. As Drupal Cabrera checked in with a three in 2016, Ahmed Rosario had a three in 2019. Before Reyes, he had Ray Ordonez always about a zero or a one because of that flimsy bat. You had your ones from Elster, you had your ones from Santana and Okendo and Tavares. But Reyes was certainly 
the star meant shortstop the first 59 years of the franchise. And what's crazy to me, he was only a three-time All-Star. Only once did he finish top 10 in MVP voting. He finished seventh in 06. Led the NL in at-bats twice, in hits once, four times in triples, three times in steals. Famously led in batting average in 2011, the circumstances of which we can shelve for another time. Right after 2011... You may recall, uh, that was the year the Marlins were moving into their new stadium. And their owner at the time, Jeffrey Loria, decided to buy up some free agents. He signed Reyes and Mark Burley and Heath Bell. But Jose regressed to his career norms in 2012. He had 287, not 337. And the Marlins actually declined from 72 wins to 69 with all those free agents coming in. Loria very quickly decided he didn't like spending money after all, and he traded away all three of those guys. That, by the way, is an owner talking the talk and failing to walk the walk. Does not seem like that will be an issue with current ownership around here. All right, that'll do it. The first podcast of calendar year 2022 is in the books. Let's thank the house band, all of them shortstops, in honor of the position group we did today. Mike Bordick was on those keyboards slapping the bass. It was Kevin Baez. The horn section, Tim Foley. And on drums, Tim Bogart. That's it. We're out of Tim's and we're out of time. This is Josh Lewin. Next week, we'll head to third base and we'll head back to our conversation with Terry Collins. Find a way to keep ourselves entertained as the lockout continues. Unfortunately, take care. Happy New Year. And let's go Mets. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.